You're listening to Contesting Wrestling, the podcast where we talk about what fans love and what other people might not about the world's most popular form of simulated combat. My name is Evan Burke. I'm a writer. I am somebody who has known the other two guys on this podcast for decades, and yet I have never, ever been able to enjoy wrestling in any meaningful capacity. All of the individual parts of it are cool. Uh, well, many of the individual parts of it are cool, but I've never really been able to get why you would watch wrestling and not do almost anything else with your time. And uh, my name is Doc Diamondfire. Um, I have been in the pro wrestling business. I first started over 10 years ago now. I've trained with Johnny Rods. I've trained with Chikara Pro. You can see me around doing mostly announcing and commentator work, but I can certainly wrestle a match if given the task. Um, I've known Evan for a very long time, and I'm going to tell him what I know about wrestling. And I look forward to seeing a fresh perspective, as I find so many of the perspectives that we see are from minds that have watched and consumed wrestling for decades and decades. And honestly, it's a little stale to me. Um, on that note, I'd like to introduce the third part of this podcast. Take it away, Professor. I am Dr. Ben Abelson. I am a professor of philosophy at Mercy College and also a mind that has consumed decades of wrestling. Uh, and I will attempt to provide a somewhat scholarly perspective on professional wrestling to um, emphasize the things about it that I find to be particularly valuable and interesting for Evans and perhaps the general edification of our audience. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. Both of you are doctors, yet I only respect one of your doctorates. And you know what? It's not who you're expecting. (laughs) I'll just say good man, Evan. So, um, So let's get into this. talk about how Abraham Lincoln was a wrestler and uh, a lot of people don't know a lot of the story about that people ask oh it was an amateur or pro and I'm like it was the 1820s and the 1830s that line did not exist what 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 was wrestling like back then we well, don't really know exactly we have a pretty good idea it's it was usually the object was simply to throw your opponent to the ground so their back touched the ground and that was it and historian I mean records aren't as good as they are now historians have said that uh, they have found one recorded loss for Lincoln the thing that people don't really realize is he was also an accomplished trash talker he'd stand there and insult the people into fighting him and then beat them and then insult them because he beat them and then once his body started breaking down he became the president when I say that like that we don't really know what was going on we don't know to what degree these things were worked or or shoots that's true right do you think that um, in ancient Greece they were combining wrestling and theater since that is basically where our modern concepts of those two things originated yeah from what I understand not so much I think Greek wrestling was fairly legitimately a sport well, they were really into sports, and keep in mind yeah. their theater was just murdering people. No, they had they had theater. You're thinking oh, of no, the Romans? They had theater, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah I'm thinking yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that. They had all sorts of theater. So, they had all sorts of which theater. actually I think, in some ways, is the closest thing to our professional wrestling of oh, any other art form in history. With the character with, archetypes and so on. With the character archetypes, with the chorus representing yes. the audience and and things like that. Agreed. They just wouldn't really have seen the point 
in sports entertainment, right? Because it's either you've got sports and the whole point of sports yeah. is to objectively see who's the best at the thing or not. And then you got entertainment where the whole point of it is to tell a pre-constructed story that isn't necessarily based on who's the, technically the best at anything or not. And so combining those two things might have seemed weird. On the other hand, um, their theater presentations were all also competitions. Yeah. Really? Yeah, you Tell won the awards for like the best tragedy or the best comedy or whatever. Oh, man. Really? They had the, <laughs> they had the ancient Greek Emmys. I mean, right, we that, do that today, like, don't yeah. we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, each festival specifically was a cast as a competition. I guess when I look at it and when I look at wrestling, question I have about it is what is the point uh it seems to defeat both the purpose of sports and of written entertainment. I think the idea is Sports often has very dramatic moments. Sure. And there's a certain kind of pattern maybe to what makes for good sports moments. But you can't plan them in advance, right? They just happen when they happen. And so most of sports, and I think you you would sympathize with this to some degree, uh, most of sports is really boring. <laughs> most of sports is not exciting. Most of sports does not speak to you emotionally, things like that. So I think part of the idea behind pro wrestling is to take the drama of sports and to create an art form that always gives you that. The, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. So the wide world of sports. Make it so that every time you tune in to the game, you're seeing a game that goes to a, you know, bases loaded, bottom of the nine, you know, full on, like what well, is going to happen, truly edge of your seat. Kind of thing. That's the idea. Maybe not every time do that, but find out how often an audience actually wants that. Because if every baseball game went into extra innings because the players were so sharp, it wouldn't be exciting. Right. And if every wrestling match was a super nail-biter, the two best athletes in the world fighting for the richest prize in the world, that wouldn't mean anything after a little while. But then, but doesn't that kind of leave the door open for like, well, so that's why a lot of wrestling has to suck to make well, yeah, the other wrestling actually. meaningful. Yes. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Same thing with actual sports. A lot of baseball games, again, for example, eh, scores two to one after three hours. Yawn. Right, but that's, <laughs> you know? that's the whack part of sports, though, right? Like, if you're going to have a completely constructed, fictitious sport, why keep the shitty parts? That's... You, you, you know, if you're going to make a delicious dessert, why not just have a pile of sugar? Because that's the part that makes it sweet, right? Mm, no, I you don't gotta... know. Well, no, it's, it's, that's the thing with Evan entertainment. Is, uh, Evan is partial to a pile of sugar. I am um. not. I, I, I meant more. Look, why, I mean, yeah, cut out the middleman. Just put the sugar in your face that's until you have diabetes. I, I get the point. No. So, so, I, so, I, I, I was more skeptical as, uh, to that analogy. You might think of it this way where, yes, you are you have to have peaks and valleys. What wrestling does is it idealizes both the peaks and the valleys to make the peaks that much 
mm-hmm. more effective. Okay. Right. So it's uh it's a way of of figuring out the best possible reward pattern and then engineering that. Also to keep in mind that a lot of people and a lot of people including children who know what wrestling is and what the level of, you know, reality is still see it as a sports analog and instead of watching it for an exciting match or a good performance, they want to see their favorite wrestlers win, so mm. they root for them and they don't care if the match is very exciting or not. They just want their guy to win. This is uh, either going to be the first episode or one of the first episodes. It's a good discussion to start the podcast off. This isn't two guys who love wrestling and one guy who hates wrestling yelling their points at each other. This is me trying to understand why people like wrestling, what the draw is beyond the you know basic visceral thrill you can get from it, I guess. When I first suggested we should pick a match for our first episode, you guys were in pretty quick agreement that this is arguably the start of modern wrestling. So uh, the match we're talking about today, or the good match that we're talking about today, is Brett the Hitman Hart versus Stone Cold Steve Austin from WrestleMania 13, uh, which was in March of 1997. I think that the specific value and importance of this match comes from the fact that it is a stylistic departure for the World Wrestling Federation at the time, now World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, People generally break up WWF slash E history into eras, um, and this was the shift from one era to another, Um, and, and I'd say perhaps the most significant shift in the history of wrestling. Now, I will say my knowledge of wrestling comes from, I was born in 1984, which meant I was, you know, in the exact right age range for what I know is called the Attitude Era, uh, right? Which is like the, like, late, you know, late 90s, the new metal era, basically, mm, right? right? That's And I heavily associate... The extreme era, starting Ex- with an X. Yes. Not, Mount- not several Xs, that wouldn't start until the early 2000s. Corn coming right at you with a Mountain Dew, like, fucking full 90s. Uh, and I very heavily associate wrestling with a lot of the nightmarish masculinity of the late 90s, early 2000s, of just, like you know, of, like, of drowning pool, the word metrosexual. I think of that era in just, like... I think wrestling's dumb, guys. When I think of wrestling, I think of that point in time, and... When I see it now, it doesn't seem like it's that different. And I'll admit I've never really gotten into it, but that's because it seems like it is this giant firewall of just dumb shit. Yeah, there's a lot of things to say to that. To begin with, I mean, that Attitude Era of wrestling, I don't know if you remember when we were hanging out, like freshman, sophomore year of high Mm -hmm. school, I wasn't really that into wrestling. Yeah, I I guess it was only when in our late teens, early 20s, when Doc came into the came into the mix, did you start getting really hardcore back into it? Those years um, of like the height of the Attitude Era, particularly like ninety eight, ninety nine, was actually the only time in my life where I wasn't really that big of a wrestling fan. Um, I wasn't into it because for me, it wasn't that much about wrestling. 
the Attitude Era was all about these like sophomore humor, dick jokes, suck it, ass cream, yeah, things like that. Just in case this winds up being the first episode, uh, I've, I've relayed the story a few times, but I have a very specific memory from probably about 16 years ago, us sitting in your room, you guys were watching wrestling, and there was all, an extended bit about ass cream where somebody had a giant jar of cream and it said ass cream on the side. Yeah, and this Christian's bit, ass cream. It went on for so long and that's all the joke. It was just people saying the words ass cream to each other. And I, in that moment, I was like, this is now a thing that Ben and Doc are into and <laughs> will be a separate part of our friendship forevermore the things that you know i genuinely love and value about wrestling were not very present during that period uh they were more so before and after during that period i still enjoyed watching it occasionally but more in a kind of like elitist laughing at the idiots who like this stupid shit and Th then that more scene and more grew I big starting around then <laughs> yeah yeah and then more and more, perhaps it is just that I have become one of those idiots more and more over the years I've been sucked into it. But I also think that, and this is a point I think I'll make a lot in this podcast, that the makeup of the audience to a large degree determines the character of the wrestling product. And so I'd like to think that as more people like me have become bigger fans of wrestling, the product has come to take on a shape that embodies the things that I and people like me find valuable. Well, if I can, uh, not to get too far from our initial point, but if I could bring things to the present right now as we're recording this, the debate within just the wrestling community in general, not even the fan community, but as wrestlers, is how exactly are we defining this going forward? The phrase performance art has been said a lot, and it's nothing new that wrestling has been described as performance art, but we're finally to the point where a large chunk of the people who have become wrestlers over the last five to ten years will immediately say, yeah, this is performance art. I'm going out there and playing a character who's not myself, having a predetermined match where we all act like it's real and the audience comes to see that performance. Isn't that cool? But the older people in the wrestling community, some of them, some of them are cool, some of them get it, but uh, some of them don't. Some of them are like, well, you've killed the business by openly telling everybody that it's fake, openly telling everybody that you have real names and, you know, exposing the business as the phrase goes. And it's becoming a big cultural war in the middle of it. So it's changing rapidly and sharply right now. And I find it fascinating. One of the most interesting things about wrestling to me as well is how these things change. Yeah. And so to bring it back to our match that we're talking about today, for me, as opposed to the vast majority of people who watched this match, who were impressed by it at the time, the uh, stylistic shift from Bret Hart to Steve Austin for me, it was a negative thing. <laughs> for me, it actually like took me out of wrestling because I liked the older style. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about yeah. what those styles really embody. That, that was one of the big differences, I think, between you and me. And I didn't, I didn't know you yet at the time, whereas you saw the change and thought, well, I want wrestling the way it was. I saw the change and, and uh, it affected me, you know, going through being a teenager is that wrestling grew up with me, including its really dumb phase, which I look back on with affection, but would not at all want them to do now. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you are slightly older than me. Yes. So, yes. um... You were already full-on adolescent, I think. 
oh, when yes. Austin was hitting, whereas I was still younger, so I didn't quite get it the same way that other people did. Right. Uh, that makes sense. Those couple of years make a big difference. This is pretty much the first time in my life I've sat down and chosen to watch wrestling in my own home. The first time in, you know, probably 10 years I've actually really even seen any at all. And there have been some changes since I was younger. You know, I I used to be pretty much just an anti, completely anti all forms of sports and athleticism because I came of age during the waning days of the jock-nerd dichotomy. Only as I have entered early middle age and stared into the face of mortality uh, have I begun to exercise myself, and then that has led to me starting to be able to appreciate athleticism to some degree if not i'm still not like into sports i've been in and out of the theater in my life my mom was in the theater i've done i've done acting i've done comedy there's a lot going on right away in this match and i imagine in wrestling in general that i can appreciate that i couldn't before i can see the training that's involved here i can see the the communication that's happening the way that two actors in a scene will hate each other, but underneath that, they're really communicating with each other. I see a lot of that going on. So there is something I can appreciate right off the bat. So, yeah, let me give you maybe some of the historical context, which might, which I think is sort of overlooked in how much uh, wrestling matches are informed by history. Sure. And how much the meaning uh, and what, what's presented, the story of the match, depends on these sorts of... Um, extrinsic kind of features. The history of the WWF slash E is usually broken up into eras, beginning with, I guess, the, the, the Hogan era or the golden age of the WWF, which was in the 80s. Evan, you and I were both born in the year that Hulkamania yep. was born. Oh, yeah. 1984. Hulkamania being the sort of pseudo-religious devotion to the wrestler mm. Hulk Hogan. The ultimate realization of George Orwell's nightmare, yes. <laughs> pseudo. Okay, well, yeah. He did actually tell his followers to say their prayers yes. uh, among among other commandments. Well, like 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 many cults, it, it just escalated at first. It's like Hulk's three commandments. You say your prayers, you take your vitamins, and you train. And then later he added, believe in yourself. And then later he added, and believe in Hulk Hogan. Right. That, those were in the days when he was afraid people were going to forget about him. This was after the steroid trial and, you know, in the mid-90s. When, okay. So speaking of that. Around now, actually, just before what we're about to talk about. Right. So exactly. That, that brings us to so the end of that era. So, so you know, Ho, uh, Vince McMahon, who's the owner of the WWF, his big cash cow, Hulk Hogan, is starting to wane in popularity a little bit. He wants to do movies. Uh, he doesn't want to beat his body up so much anymore. And it's just, you know, the, the money train was, was leaving the station at that point. And Vince had to figure out something else. Also, he was dealing with this ster uh, steroid trial that Doc mentioned. And, and the IRS uh, auditing the entirety of the WWF for about a year uh, they found nothing just saying of all the problems that they had the irs went all the way through the wwf and we're like oh you paid us and vince is like yes i paid you leave us alone so outside of steroids being bad f for you yeah. like on a health level why is it bad to do steroids in wrestling um well 
The because, health part is the most of it. In the early 90s, it was because they had just made steroids illegal. Okay. And the speci- we're not going to... This is a thing that has actually been covered to death in other wrestling media. I'll give you the very short version of the steroid trial, which you, was... You understand my confusion, right? Yes, like yes, Like in course. sports, it makes sense because you're trying to make sure who yeah. naturally got there. But in wrestling, like, isn't it just about who can put on the best show? It's, like, com- it's completely a health thing, but... Well, okay. Yes, it's about who can put on the best show, but putting on the best show might involve having the best body. It might have um, having the most... Um, stamina? Stamina. So, yeah. Having the most stamina in a match night or something like that. Right? So you can perform way better if you're on steroids. Now, the fact that steroids... Thank you, Professor Abelson. You can perform much better if you're <laughs> well, on yeah. steroids. Well, yeah, for for also... some limited period <laughs> right, of time also... until <laughs> your body breaks down and your balls shrivel up and whatever else. Which is uh, like, you don't have a get heart me wrong. attack and die. Yeah, or you fucking lose your mind and murder your family. Which or, all... But that was probably more about concussions, but... Well, yeah, and all of that is all of that is ob- you know obviously like steroids are bad. You shouldn't be doing right. them, but it's just funny to work for a guy who's like, "Look, I don't want you taking any performance enhancing drugs. Now get out there and leap t- fucking twelve feet onto yeah. the Spanish announcers table and well, break it." Like Vince specifically was always into bodybuilders. Bodybuilding missed our generation because bodybuilders started to look like awful, veiny freaks right around the time we started becoming aware of the world. But bodybuilding was a major sport for young boys to to look up to bodybuilders for decades and decades, up until like just after Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like the the Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding pictures are very tasteful. He looks great, and everyone that comes after him looks awful, in my opinion. But my point about the bodybuilding thing is Vince would then give the better jobs and the more money to the people that looked the biggest which encouraged everyone to take as many steroids as possible and that destroys their body and they die. So Vince unwittingly yeah. creates uh, a, a problem. Okay, I see. Right. Yeah, and yeah. also well, keep in mind, just not to completely throw Vince under the bus, which I'll do if it's warranted, they didn't really know what steroids would do to you until like the, the, the early 80s and they weren't even illegal until 1990. Oh, wow. So yeah, uh, when they first came out in bodybuilding circles in the 60s, you could go to the doctor, he'd give you 100 syringes and as much steroids as you wanted because why wouldn't he yeah. and they found out oh no this is really bad for you and they took him off the market i feel like if you threw vince mcmahon under a bus everyone on that bus would die and vince would still be at work the next day <laughs> but, accurate but i think a, 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 a another point you were making there evan is to say look wrestling is bad for you anyway Yes. Right. Like, okay, so it's a little bit worse for you if you take steroids. Right. You're already choosing a path of life that is going to destroy you. But uh, it's it it doesn't have to be that bad for you, I think. But I, I defer actually to Doc on this. Should we in any way attempt to mitigate how bad wrestling is for for the participants? Or is it just a matter of kind of, well, you're a wrestler, so. Well, we, we absolutely should try to mitigate it. I mean, there is a point. We do know that you know what we're doing is not good for our bodies. That being said, I'm a big fan of the fact that several years ago, the WWE started banning chair shots to the head because you don't need to hit each other in the head with big pieces of steel all the time in order to put on a good show. And since they're the leader in the industry, trickled down, and now it's very rare anywhere to see that. There are still places that will do it, but it used to. it had become way too standard. So, yeah, I think we should be mitigating that. But I think the better way to mitigate it that we don't do it is to maybe give the wrestlers like health insurance and time off. There's a greater question of yes. 
does freedom mean giving somebody the freedom to do dumb shit that hurts themselves if it's their prerogative to do it? Which, you know, you could say, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. But then on the other hand, then look at what happened. You know, if you have a whole society filled with people right. doing that, then everybody's fucked and, you know, we yeah, all start dying early. It's a matter early. of degree, exactly. not absolutes. Right. I mean, steroids aside, there's a difference between you get old and your knees hurt and you get old and your brain is freaking mush from concussions sure. so that you murder yourself and your family. Yeah. That's the probably the worst thing that's ever happened in wrestling. I guess as individual things right. go, can you weigh the Benoit tragedy against the general exploitation of the industry as a whole? That's the whole thing. But speaking of exploitation. And then there was also <laughs> the bad match we're going to talk about today is a, is a nice example of that. But um, we're not there yet. No, we are not. We're not there yet. We're no. not. Yeah. The bad match so, is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so the waning years right of the Hogan era, Vince McMahon decides that the WWF needs a squeaky clean image in order to survive the steroid trial and all this stuff. They're competing with Disney. Competing with Disney. So they transform into... They were already somewhat a kid's show, but they transform... They, like, double down on the kid's thing. Everyone is a cartoon character. Everyone has another job for some reason besides being a wrestler. All with the exception of the top guy, who's Bret Hart. And Bret Hart isn't a cartoon character... He's just, his character is just that he is the best wrestler. He is a professional murderer. <laughs> well, the yes. The hitman, yes. The, yes, the, right. right. That is what that word means. It's a, Right. It's li perhaps a little misleading. Um, he, he was, he got the hitman moniker, I believe from Gorilla Monsoon, who started by calling him the excellence of execution. Uh, he was actually a heel at the time. Um, heel meaning bad guy or villain in the uh, wrestling parlance, as opposed to a face. Baby face. We talk about all that. So, yeah, so he was a heel at the time, but the excellence of execution description applied to his execution of the wrestling moves. Uh, so he's executing holds like a hitman would execute presidents for large amounts of money. Right. Something gotcha. like Competently. That. Yes. Competently. <laughs> <laughs> Excellently. <laughs> so Brett's character. So in real life, he was the he was a second generation wrestler son of the Stu Hart, who is a wrestler and promoter in Canada, um, who eventually sold his business to Vince McMahon when Vince conquered the wrestling world in the early 80s. Brett is the one of uh, 12 brothers and sisters. Ugh. Eight brothers, four sisters. The eight brothers were all wrestlers. The four sisters all married wrestlers. Brett grows up in this wrestling family and sort of represents the tradition of wrestling of knowing what you're doing in the ring, executing the moves excellently, having a lot of respect for professional wrestling, having a lot of respect for your opponent. So he's sort of, he works for the kids because he represents these sort of traditional virtues of honesty and respect and discipline and hard work. You want to raise a good wrestler as a father, you should make sure that your love for your son is entirely contingent on whether or not they are good at wrestling. That's how you get a real masterpiece, you know? Uh, well, that's that's pretty much Stu Hart. Many of his boys were very successful as wrestlers, uh, two of them making it huge on the worldwide stage and uh, several of the others being big stars in the Calgary area, which doesn't sound that impressive until you realize that wrestling used to be all regional and they owned that place. Yeah, and we'll get into this a bunch. 
Um, but it certainly had not uh, entirely positive effects on the psychology of uh, some of his kids. Brett, in particular, will have reason to talk about, seemed to believe in pro wrestling a little bit mm. too oh, literally. Too much, yeah. So, yeah. so then this is kind of a, there's sort of a generational aspect to this match in the sense that, you know, you've got Bret Hart, the uh, the boomer ideal guy who uh, worked hard his whole life and ascended yes. to the top through a combination of hard work and skill and luck and, you know, just ballsiness and grabbing it. And then uh, comes ne- nepotism, uh, nepotism, nepotism, good old. Ne- yeah. Nepotism. Yeah. Exactly. A story okay. about he, hard he work. He did work incredibly hard. He sure. had to compete with his other seven brothers to make it to the top of yeah. his father's wrestling promotion. And then he made it everywhere else. He was very good. I love Brett. Don't get me wrong. But he, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Look, Nicolas Cage worked hard to become the greatest actor who's ever lived. And uh, he's still a Coppola. You know, that has a huge part of how it's a huge part of how we got there. Yeah. It's it's good to get your foot in the door. Yeah. It's an uncontroversial statement I just Mm -hmm. made. Uh, But I think that. And but anyway, so then. So here's Bret Hart. That explains it. And oh, did you not know? Yeah. Nicholas. He's Francis Ford Coppola's nephew, I think. Uh, so then, upstart Generation X nihilist Stone Cold Steve Austin, a wizard who can summon beer from nothing. Oh yes. Uh, who, you know, I get the impression from Stone Cold Steve Austin that he does not care for the rules. No. That he is perhaps too extreme for the rules. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> at the point, uh, well observed, Evan. Well observed. So at this point, you know, the WWF, the WWF audience was getting rather restless with the uh, the kitty stuff. And uh, and that restlessness was causing them to go to other alternative sources of wrestling that were a little bit more adult in their presentation. WCW, which was owned by Ted Turner, World Championship Wrestling. They were always WWF's main competitor. But now, with their new Monday Nitro program, their edgy uh, New World Order storyline and all this stuff, uh, which also involved Hogan and all these other past stars of the WWF who had jumped ship. WCW was starting to beat WWF in the ratings and it was looking like WWF might not survive. So there there had to be this kind of uh, shift to the extreme. Yeah, this was before the WWF was a public company. I mean, they were a large company, but if they went down, it was just, you know, McMahon's money and they couldn't just draw a bunch more money. I'd like to point out something that a lot of wrestling, uh, a lot of general wrestling media doesn't, and that it was indicative of a grander cultural shift across media, um, and it was happening very fast in the 90s. You know, back in 1990, like in, in late 1994, the biggest band in the world was Hootie and the Blowfish. You know, in 1997, that wasn't valid at all anymore. Well, nobody had told the WWF that. WCW figured that out in 1996 and started moving grittier and more realistic and so on and more extreme, as you would say. There was ECW, (laughs) which started properly in 1993, right in the thick of all of that, as just a small regional promotion that grew into prominence by having its finger on the pulse of the dirty wave of grunge and metal that was coming forward. By 1997, the WWF had largely missed that boat, partially out of necessity, as as we're Professor Abelson was describing, but they were ready to go for it 
Wrestling is always biggest when they reflect the culture at large currently. Usually, the WWE is a few years behind the time, but over the next few years, they would synergize with it perfectly and hit their biggest heights. And Stone Cold Steve Austin would lead the charge and eventually hand it off to The Rock. There's a funny parallelism here uh, that we've already remarked on between our own ages and our own development and maturity and the development and maturity of the WWF. Yeah. Paralleling that more or less closely, depending on our slight differences in age. And it's sort of, it's an interesting thing for me, specifically because Bret Hart in 1996 loses the WWF title to Shawn Michaels. It's a kind of passing of the torch. And then he disappears. And he is gone from WWF for the entire summer and most of the fall which is the time in which Steve Austin is coming to prominence. There's this famous Austin 316 promo from the King of the Ring 1996. I'm sure, Evan, you remember the Austin 316 t-shirts. Yes, yeah, I feel popular. like I saw one last week. Oh, you still see them. Well, Austin yeah. is still a big star, and that was a popular you know, thing. And it was the was most my... popular t wrestling t-shirt of all time. I, I will think. say it even... It simple enough to put on a shirt, too. It wasn't a picture of some guy's face. Even with my distaste for wrestling, Stone Cold Steve Austin was a guy who I had sort of vaguely positive associations with until I Googled his name and the word allegations. Yeah, I mean, that'll happen. Yeah, I would imagine that happens in wrestling with at least the same frequency it happens in the music biz. Yeah, anything, about the you know. same as, you know, as just about everyone. Yeah, as every, know, as uh, everyone in society. It's not terrible. So so that uh, King of the Ring promo was really the genesis of this whole thing. It's it's worth dwelling on for a moment. So Austin had just defeated Jake the Snake Roberts, who was also a, a star of the Hogan era, who was over the hill at this point and also was battling drug and alcohol addiction. And his whole character was that he had recovered and was now a born-again Christian. Instead of his old snake, Damien, his new snake was called Revelations. It was a beautiful white and yellow python. Just fantastic. Uh, and also nobody believed him because he fell off the wagon immediately. Uh, so the story of Jake the Snake Roberts is really good for an entire other episode, uh, at least. Where Austin 316 comes from is... Austin says, oh, you, Jake the Snake Roberts, you've got your John 316, you've got your Bible verses, this and that. Well, Austin 316 says, I just whooped your ass. That nice little cocktail of mild profanity and irreverence uh, was just a fireball for the WWF audience. And trying to criticize the like born again Christian is one thing. Austin, the the dirty um, fighter, criticizing the born again Christian that everybody knows is full of it anyway, is another fold in that that I think is very important to point out because people knew that Jake wasn't sticking to that. Okay, this right. is... I think a really popular yeah. thing in culture at that time was uncovering hypocrisy. Yes, right. Yes. It's like you could be as bad as you wanted as long as you were honest about it. That made you good. <laughs> and you've said before that that's basically what makes or at least for many years, that's what made a villain or a hero in wrestling is whether it is either adherence to a particular set of values or a hypocritical expression. But everyone was fine with Hogan being a hypocrite. I mean, Bobby the Brain Heenan would call Hogan out all the time on his hypocrisy. Yeah. But everyone was cool with it because they loved Hogan. And the, the bad guys were such cartoon character villains, <laughs> you know. Okay, this might be a bit broad of a question, but at this point in time, who is wrestling for? 
Is it just for adolescent boys? Is Does this represent a transformation in who so it is at, for? At that moment, wrestling was very much for young men, and all of those young men were watching WCW. I think that's the short answer. I mean, WWF re- didn't know who they were going for. Wrestling is always meant for everyone, and that's... I think what's kind of cool about it that's you, what that's what makes that- it that's what makes it very lowest common denominator a lot of the times but that also you know it, it, you can also cast that as it being universal as it having you know a kind of human appeal well um, or at least you, it's m- the people who are making it want it to be for everybody right. they want as big an audience as possible right because it, I, I would I would say that there is Maybe there's a lowest common denominator aspect, but there is also there is extremely heavy coding going on in wrestling, right? Like there's extremely yes. heavy like four dudes coding for. So even if it, the people making it want to appeal to as many people as possible, I do feel like it still feels like it has a very narrow. That that's not a thing that's been true forever though. Um, the coding has kind of been similar for the last hundred years, but audiences have responded to it differently like in in the for example in many of the the southern circuits in the 70s and the 80s the audiences were like 60 40 women the women were coming to see the oiled up shirtless men well, that's... and then they would follow them around the road just like they were rock stars and the men wouldn't want to go sometimes because the dave Meltzer, the world's most famous wrestling journalist caught on way before anyone else that women's wrestling was getting incredibly good in Japan in the very early 90s so he would go to Japan to see the women's wrestling shows he'd be the only man there because their demographic were teenage girls and they were pop idols and you know for I, example you I know? will say like I it's an easy joke uh, and an easy observation to make about like the homoeroticism of yes, wrestling of intentional or well uh, probably mostly unintentional uh, and however and it, you know how much does the audience pick up on or not but like it is Watching this match, it being the first match I've watched in God knows how long, it is it is supremely intimate. Oh, like yes. it is an unbelievably it it is not just like the physical contact, not but like the not just the communication, like the trust that has to go into it. Mm-hmm. Like it, you know, maybe it's sexual, maybe it's not sexual. It's easy to say that it is certainly, but it is unquestionably a remarkably intimate act, and I would say a lot more intimate than uh, than two actors. Uh, even more, you know, I went to college for music. I was a musician for most of my life. Uh, playing music with somebody else is a very intimate act. Uh, it's got fucking nothing on wrestling. There, there's a bunch of critical theory actually talking about... There was one volume published uh, by, I think, MIT Press. It's called Steel Chair to the Head that had some articles in it talking about representations of masculinity in wrestling, but also wrestling as a sort of way for men to kind of have a space, safe space in which to work out their intimacy with each other. So for instance, in tag team wrestling, you know, the idea that you have a partner who's going to save you or who might betray you or things like that is, is playing with, you know, a lot of our maybe insecurities about our, about men's relationships with other men uh, that, you know, they don't really have another, outlet for uh for meditating on and i think there's been there's been ink spilled and at least one youtube documentary about like the intimacy of mma and how that can serve especially in especially amongst guys who are still very into traditional ideas of masculinity 
but also are human beings who need to express themselves and need to express, you know, intimate feelings. You know, it basically creates a safe space for them to touch each other, a safe space for them to to get close to another human being and share a really intense experience with each other. The pure physical aspect of it then, which is the other side of it, you know, you talk about the kind of what it is in the abstract, but like... It, as opposed to actors on stage where they, you know, they'll spend an hour dancing around each other and then they'll kiss or something or like, or even musicians on stage, you know, Fleetwood Mac will play for two hours and at the peak of one of their biggest hits, you know, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham will kiss and the audience will be like, oh, they're getting back together. It's like, no, they still hate each other. They do it every night and that's why they can charge a thousand dollars for tickets. Does that really happen that's at why... Fleetwood Mac shows? Not anymore because currently Lindsey Buckingham isn't in the right, band, yeah, but yeah. that was their big main event for a long time. Wow. They'd sing together, they'd have their, their thing, and then finally they'd come together and the audience would come back every time. Brilliant, by the way. Uh, you <laughs> about Rammstein recently? Yes. Oh, yes. yes. Did. Yeah, that was good for them. Good. Go Rammstein. Go Rammstein. In Russia? In Russia, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, did a, they did a homosexual kiss on stage in Russia for anyone that doesn't where know it's where illegal. it's illegal. Yeah. Very illegal. And uh, the guys in Rammstein don't particularly like that. Um, anyway, yeah, so when, when you're in the ring with somebody, like when you train, one of the first things you have to get over is the, the, the intense physical contact with somebody else that's not just like, it's not just violent, uh, it's cooperative. If I'm going to body slam somebody, I have to, like the physical things, you know, throw their arm over my shoulder, I'll put my arm over their shoulder, I'll put my other arm all the way between their legs and the crook of my elbow is at their crotch, uh, fully. And if it's not, I'm being unsafe. If you hook the person halfway up their thigh or on their knee and lift, they can't get a base on your arm to push themselves up to go around. And what could happen is I can either injure their knee or flip them over onto their head. No, I need to get, like, my arm as tightly as possible around the other person's crotch. It's like you really are trying to find the single most gentle way to do violence on somebody else exactly kind of like, yeah. that's like, <laughs> very I, much so yeah i would i i think uh and correct me if i'm wrong doc that as a professional wrestler most of the time at least you want to maximize the appearance of damage and violence while minimizing its reality yeah yeah, Mick Foley said in his book, Have a Nice Day, you know, that people would send him VHS tapes of themselves bloodying themselves horrible, doing like the cheese grater spot. And he said, next time you do the cheese grater spot, do what the pros do. One guy holds a cheese grater a millimeter away from your face and the other guy makes a face. Let me. Do you yeah, find and this was Mick Foley who bled buckets and destroyed his body. He know he's no stranger to just abusing himself for it, but still, you don't just scrape a cheese grater across your face. That's stupid. So in in the locker room at a wrestling training facility, yeah. is it a is it a space where it is more okay? Cuz like men are bad at least straight guys, we, we are not good at, like, being able to compliment each other. You know yeah, what I yeah. mean? The way that, like, literally every other group of people is able to right. be like, hey, you look hot today, uh-huh. and it's not an issue. And is that, like, since, since you know, fashioning your body into an ideal is at least kind of part of what yeah. you're all doing there, is it more acceptable to be like, bro, looking sexy? 
Well, I mean, you don't necessarily say looking sexy, but you go up to somebody and say, hey, man, your abs are coming in. That's great. What are you doing? And then the other person will be like, well, these are my workouts or I'm doing this diet. And, you know, yeah, you'll directly compare body parts. And it's in in a lot of other places like straight men or not. It's considered very rude to just comment on other people's bodies. Well, yeah, it's it's not really in a wrestling locker room or in many places of performance like that where everybody's looking at your body anyway it's just par for the course sure and you're it's it's kind of why you're all or at least part of why you're all there or it's part of your it's a part of everybody's journey to shy away from it would be doing all of us a disservice just for for the sake of all of our egos we feed our own egos plenty we don't need somebody to also tell us that we look great unless we look great so uh getting back to the match oh yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, getting no, back no, to no, Bret Hart versus Steve. I, I want to learn Might more well about gym etiquette because I'm going to join a gym for the first time, <laughs> yeah. and I need to know how to how to be in there. I can I can talk to you about that later. That's if okay. You want. That'll be that'll be yeah. our other podcast. So yeah. while this whole King of the Ring thing is happening, Bret Hart's not around. I wasn't around. I was in summer camp that summer. I was not watching wrestling. I missed the whole Austin 316 thing. I come back at the end of the summer and everybody loves Austin. Uh, Brett's still not back yet. And I kind of don't get it. I'm like, this guy would whoops your ass, this and that. Like, I don't, uh, he's okay. I guess he's kind of a good wrestler, but come on. Brett is the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. And I really believed that and still kind of do. So, so this, this shift was happening and I wasn't, quite on board with it myself i was at the survivor series in 1996 where bret hart returns and wrestles austin for the first time and they have a great little wrestling match bret wins the crowd is not entirely pleased about that like about half the crowd is cheering the other half of the crowd is like oh we kind of wanted austin to win i didn't understand that but that was what was what was happening just like me bret was your guy but if you hadn't seen the direct rise of Austin on the TV for the previous couple of months, like it was confusing for a Brett guy because Austin was clearly like he had some worth that was very different from the Hitman's. It was confusing to a Brett guy, and it was confusing to the guy Brett. Right. Uh, in the, uh, the the character uh, didn't understand what was happening. He why is he losing his fans? Why aren't people respecting him the same way? Why aren't people respecting him for beating Austin? Austin lost. He showed he was the better man. Why are they cheering for Austin? This kind of thing is happening. It seems like Brett is a uh, is better at the technical side of wrestling. Brett is a better athlete per se. And Austin, while not necessarily a bad one, is perhaps better at the performance aspect. He is better at inhabiting a character, better at the at the act at the entertainment part of sports entertainment. For sure, and- uh, Austin was a very good technical wrestler, but he was no Bret Hart. His it, it, Bret learned very well over the years to work his character, which was kind of a subtle character. But Austin's character, which he worked very well, was fresh, new, and in tune with the current culture. Now, is that part of the frustration that happened where people previously were more into the idea of this is an athletic contest, at least the appearance of it being an athletic contest is important, whereas Mm. moving over to Austin was like, well, now we're just admitting that this is a show. That's I think that's definitely the case to some degree. So for a lot of wrestling fans, every generation of wrestling fans, there's a wrestler who they think isn't getting their due. 
And it's usually someone who's really good at the technical athletic parts of wrestling, but is not particularly charismatic or their charisma is sort of weird and people don't get it. And, and yeah, so there's always like the smart fans favorites. So there's that kind of like snobbery, I think that tends to veer towards the no frills, the, the less entertainmenty, more sportsy, you know, uh, pure wrestler kind of thing. And, and we, you had that in the 80s. In the 80s, the debate, uh, because wrestling was still largely regional, was are you a fan of Hulk Hogan, who punched H- Hogan or Flair, and yeah. kicked and gouged eyes and did great promos and shook, or Ric Flair, who would wrestle for an hour straight without taking a step back or a hard breath? And then the 90s, it was really Brett. The 90s, when Brett was the champion, was kind of the only time that that character really got to be the champion. It's because business was in the toilet, and the only people watching were the people who were going to watch wrestling no matter what was happening. Like me. Yeah. It was him and uh, him and Shawn Michaels, you know, who was, a, who was an incredible athlete and very charismatic in his own right, but some people didn't like him because he wasn't very big, and other people didn't like him because he's, as Vince McMahon would say repeatedly on commentary, flamboyant so you can fit uh, that in yeah the, the crowd at the manhattan center would have a few other words to use to describe Shawn michaels it has only become the case recently that wrestlers coded as gay or like flamboyant or whatever are beloved by fans more often than hated it used to be like you want to get heat you want to get the crowd to go against you act gay you know, I mean, I feel like that's, that's no longer the case, but only very recently. I mean, I feel like that was society's setting until yes. like 2012, maybe yeah, something it, like that. Well, like, like I said, it's the reflection of society, um, and when it does it correctly, that's when it's when people start to like wrestling. <laughs> now, you guys referred to this match as the Hart Austin double turn. Yes. What is that? What does that mean? As we talked about the the crowd reacting in kind of an ambiguous fashion to their previous match. But in this match, uh, as far as the story is concerned, Bret Hart is still firmly the babyface, the good guy, and Stone Cold Steve Austin is still firmly the, the heel, the bad guy, even though both of them are getting very mixed reactions. It's been bubbling for a long time, and during this match, they executed perfectly something that's very difficult to do, in that by the end of the match, Austin was clearly the good guy, and Bret was clearly the bad guy. They, that's hard to do in any form of media. If you ever see them do it in a movie, it's after building up a good guy for two hours, and then he's the bad guy, and the villain was the good guy. It's, it's very difficult to pull off. Yeah, they did it very skillfully. From the beginning, just from their entrances, you know, you get... Austin has this glass shattering thing and he walks out and then Brett has to kind of walk over the broken glass, right? you know, representing the years of wrestling tradition that Austin has shattered and the trial that's in front of him now. And, and Brett at the beginning, he's still playing the baby face. He gives his glasses to his sunglasses to a young audience member as he usually would do. His parents are sitting in the audience. Uh, There's a whole bunch of other wrestling hall of famers in the audience. So they're really trying to present as, as clearly as possible, this clash between tradition and I mean, it was WrestleMania. We can't, 
forget to mention that, you know, it was the biggest show of the year. And it was the first time in a long, long time that the WWF was not the biggest wrestling company in the world. WCW had overtaken them. So basically leading up to this match, they were not doing well. Like they were right. things nobody was nobody cared. Nobody was watching. Everything was boring. Everything was the corpse of the 80s. They had put a lot into Shawn Michaels, actually, as being kind of the next big star. And then he sort of self-destructed. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Uh, but he wasn't going to be the guy to turn business around. Yeah. Now was the time to do something different. And this was something different. So the match stylistically in terms of how they're wrestling is already a departure in that they spend the first half of the match is completely outside of the ring. They brawl into the crowd. This was not something common at that time. In the ensuing years, it would be way overdone. And every single match would spill out over into the it crowd. Does, the way that people react is they seem very surprised that this is happening. And like the way, I gotta say, the way there's a point where they're out, they're out in the crowd and you see people like reverently like reaching out to touch them in this yeah. with this sort of religious awe in a way that I'm like, first off, those guys are definitely disgusting right now yes. to touch. There's definitely covered your, your hand is coming away with slime Terrible. on it. Uh, also, they probably don't want you to do that. That's very distracting, I would imagine, yes, when you're already uh, trying to fake fight a guy out in an audience and not actually hurt anybody around you. Yeah, this was before that was done a lot, you know, so people didn't, you know, they were, they were, they were this guy's right in front of me now. I've only seen him on TV or, or behind the barricade. Uh, another thing that makes that odd that we haven't mentioned is that this was a submission match. You had to win by putting a hold on the other guy or making the other guy quit. They had to say the words, I quit. Yeah. Which was actually, ring, I might add, was a callback to a match uh, at the WrestleMania two years previous. Yeah. WrestleMania 11, where Bret Hart wrestled Bob Backlund, who was a guy from the pre-Hogan era. Yeah. He, he was champion for about five to six years uh, in the late 70s to the early 80s. He is the white meatest white meat USA baby face you could ever see. He was so Irish. He glowed. He was so American. Like, oh, my God. And the story of that match was that Backlund had snapped because guys like Bret Hart were departing too much from his own values. Yeah. So now Bret is cast, you know, in that position of the curmudgeon against the the rebel or whatever, in, in the opposite position than he was in two years previous. How much do wrestling fans think about all this? Like, are you guys, like, how nerdy are you guys in comparison to wrestling fans? Pretty nerdy. We're super nerdy in reflecting on these features, but I think they everyone feels them. I think subconsciously or implicitly, they matter to wrestling fans. Yeah. They just haven't really thought about them with the sort of conceptual apparatus to kind of pull these things out. I'm pretty sure that most people listening to these kinds of analyses who are big wrestling fans, I'd like to think that they're going to resonate what we're saying is going to resonate with them. Trying to put together a wrestling event, and again, same as other media, the center is not in what you're putting out. The center is in how the people consuming it are going to react. What made the double turn successful it isn't that Austin stopped cheating and Brett started cheating. That's, that's not how that works. What made the double turn successful is that they got the audience to 
feel something different over the course of the match. So the audience decided themselves by the end of the match, they like Austin now and not Brett. And you can't force that. You have to let it happen. You have to create a scenario where people will decide that on their own. The writer or whatever, the booker, like whoever, whoever is part of the creative process of deciding who wins a match and how, and how that match is going to unfold. How often do they aim and miss? How often are they like, okay, at the end of this match, we think the audience is going to feel this way, and to anybody watching the match, it's clear both what their intention was and that they missed it, it, it in comparison varies, to this match. It varies heavily from time to time. They miss a lot today. They uh, started hitting a lot right after this match. Um, the the last few years, they've been missing more than they ever had before. Uh, it's getting harder and harder, I think, for them to anticipate and respond to the, the audience. Do you think that is because the audience is savvier than it used to be? No, no is that it's the children that are wrong. It is always the children yeah. that are wrong. When will no, they yes, learn? Yes, the no, audience the, is savvy. Have, the audience, the is audience has so much more information at their disposal with sure. the internet to begin with, right? You can't really lie to them. It's so easy to just Google something and be like, oh, wait, this guy isn't really, you know, from Haiti. Right, Kofi and, Kingston isn't really Jamaican. He's from Ghana. Right, right, right. The wrestling world at large learned that Kofi Kingston wasn't really from Jamaica and he was from Ghana when one of his relatives did an interview in Ghana saying, why isn't he just saying he's from Ghana? And the real reason why was that most people in America don't know where Ghana is, but they have an idea of what Jamaica is. And then Kofi dropped the fake Jamaican accent, was like, yeah, I'm Kofi Kingston. I was born from Ghana. And now he's the WWE champion. He's much more successful for him. And, and the other thing, while I do think that our way of thinking about wrestling is probably more sophisticated than the average wrestling fan. The average wrestling fan has gotten way more sophisticated in this same way where they're thinking about face turns and heel turns and who's getting pushed and all this other stuff, all this like kind of insider stuff that just wasn't parlance of most audiences conceptual architecture before. Sometimes I wonder how much becoming savvy is a good thing. For like I like right here, I'm a writer. I have had no success that is you know meaningful, but I I I've been doing it for a long time and I like doing it. And so I when I watch TV shows I love, of course I dissect them in my brain and I'm like oh blah blah blah, and I could write you know twenty thousand words on my feelings about game like how Game of Thrones ended and that kind of stuff. But I tend I you know I tend not to put it out there. Because there's just, there's so many takes. Everybody's just, everybody's got piping hot takes about yep. everything. Everybody's deconstructing it uh, to an insane level. You know, I just, before I came down, I watched Lindsay Ellis's two and a half hour thing on, on the end of Game of Thrones and all this stuff, which was great. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But there is a point at which, you know, and I'm picking Game of Thrones as an easy example because it was something that was a large cultural phenomenon where everybody got very specific about the ways in which they feel that the writers were not executing yeah. their their thing properly. And a lot of people were right. Like, a lot of those takes were absolutely fucking great and on point. But then it gets... As I was watching all of that happen, I start wondering, like, how is anything going to be good in the future? Like, if we all know things that 30 years ago you had to be, like, a professional screenwriter to even think about any of this shit, if everybody knows about structure and tropes and all of this, there's a point 
where that's really good because it forces the people making the creative product to get better and better and better. There seems like a point at which it just becomes impossible where everybody's expectations are, are set impossibly high and people can't possibly fucking produce that. Yeah. It might be, I mean, it might cause the death of a lot of forms of media (laughs) uh, for two reasons, for the reason that you've already said on the part of the audience, but I think there's another danger on the part of the producers that they get so good at figuring out the right formula that the stuff like there aren't any surprises anymore. It's sometimes it's good to have some misses just because it just like keeps it interesting. Right. Once the formula is is set, it only works for so long before it gets boring and then something breaks through. You know, you're right. And that is a thing that's that's happened across all media that everyone. Everyone now has enough information to make judgments, but not enough information to have the context of why creators mm-hmm. do you know, certain things. Uh, <laughs> George Carlin said once, I don't concern myself when I see a movie of whether or not it's any good. The fact that hundreds of people got together for months and put together this incredible piece of media and worked hard on it is enough for me because he'd been in show business long enough to know how hard it is to make something that sucks, let alone something that's good. And sometimes the difference between that has nothing to do with most of the people involved in it. That's always the question, right? Like I, you know, I tried to shoot a pilot a few years ago that when I might as well have just lit three thousand dollars on fire basically like it was a great learning experience and not everybody who was part of it was fucking awesome and we all worked really hard and it was pretty much entirely my fault that it didn't work out so if any of those people are listening to this don't worry I'm not blaming you but I that experience simultaneously gave me like I was like oh now I understand how movies cost. Two hundred million dollars. I right. could sp- I could have spent two hundred million dollars on this fucking like five minute thing that we tried to shoot and it didn't work. And at the same time, it makes you wonder like how when when something that is truly bad gets put out there and you know how many people were involved and all this, it also makes you go like nobody stopped and said like what what are we doing, guy? Can we look at? Can we take a look at the script? Can we do can we can we do something here like not one single person you know and I guess a lot I of guess the times though lots of people yeah. say that but not the two or three people in charge who yeah. are able to yeah. do something have you ever had a job where everybody that works at the job knows exactly what the problem is except the boss oh uh you mean all jobs I've ever had yes. pretty much like yeah I think two exceptions out of so 20. uh Steve Austin and Bret Hart uh <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, Look, no, this no, is a wide-ranging podcast. We were podcast. gonna, we were is, gonna this just a, talk about the match for like the next. This is this is a podcast that covers the human experience through the lens of learning about wrestling. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> so we we uh, so, one so, major detail we haven't said is that uh, you know we we have a special guest referee involved, which is right. a MMA fighter Ken Shamrock. Right. He's about to start wrestling for the WWF at the time. The UFC had just started to become a popular thing. Yeah, it was being banned and unbanned in states left and right. And bringing Shamrock, bringing like a real fighter in lent this air of realism and real violence and, and, and real kind of combat to the match and to the subsequent uh, wrestling period. They didn't overdo his appearance. He was there. He kept order. He got involved uh, physically once after the match. Right. 
Um, so, so that we have this literal transgressing of boundaries, them fighting in the crowd. Bret Hart even gets thrown onto the legends that are sitting in the front row. <laughs> right. Hart wrestles in this really kind of calculatedly violent and dirty way. Um, which is interesting because you would expect that from Austin, but the fact that Brett is sort of stooping to his level mm. is, I think, what makes Brett a heel in the end, is the fact that he's abandoning his own principles, his own values. And he does it in really interesting ways. Like, for instance, in this match, he innovates the figure four around the ring post. So he takes a classic pro wrestling move that Ric Flair used to do that was involved in some of the like biggest NWA title changes of the last 30 years and whatever. And he turns it into this, you know, newfangled, extreme weaponized hold around the ring post. Brett really pulls this kind of stuff out in this match and in the end ends up bloodying Austin. And we get this iconic um, scene of Austin in the sharpshooter, Bret Hart's submission hold, bleeding out of the head, wearing the proverbial crimson mask. Uh, I'm not sure what proverb... That is the talks about Austin three sixteen. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, <laughs> obviously it must be Austin three uh, seventeen. Oh, okay, right, uh, right. Because we know what Austin three sixteen. Um, and so in the end, Austin never submits. He passes out from the blood loss, and that's extremely important too, because you know. So if Austin had won the match, maybe the crowd, some of the crowd, would have been happy, but it wouldn't have made Brett. It wouldn't have made Hart a villain, and it wouldn't have made. Uh, Austin that much of a hero it would have proven that Brett was indeed better than Austin and could show Austin that if Austin had tapped out if Austin had right. tapped out but I'm saying even if Austin had won it oh, wouldn't have accomplished won, what they right? wanted to he had to have been sort of like frustrated by the loss in a certain way that you, you needed to get the crowd to have sympathy for him and so he had to lose but he couldn't tap out that would have made you know that would have belied the kind of resilience and like tough sort of virtues that he was supposed to embody. So it had to be this sort of delicate balance where he loses, but he doesn't quit. And then in the end, Bret Hart attacks him after the match, even further departing from the sort of, you know, respect and integrity and, and all the other stuff that Bret was supposed to represent. And that's when we get the full turn and Austin comes out a complete hero. Shamrock Brett pulls Bret physically off of Austin, instantly making him a star in the professional wrestling world. He puts his hands up and the crowd is ready to see him fight Bret. And then Brett walks away. <laughs> and then Austin Stone Cold stunners the poor innocent referee to the delight of the audience. Right. Showing that while he is... Not Shamrock. A, not Shamrock. The, the, the other regular little referee that comes in. <laughs> right. Showing that while he is the hero now, he is clearly an anti-hero. He's not embodying the same values that Bret Hart did before. And this to me is what's so interesting about pro wrestling and specifically this match is how you have what is happening Happening in the ring and the the story that's unfolding is determined by the shifting values of the people in the audience. I felt like a really powerful moment uh, when they go to that shot of Brett's whole family sitting there and his father, who you who you've mentioned and we've talked about in some other episodes, but that look of disappointment on his face. Which maybe it's all theater. Maybe there's some percentage of actual disappointment there. I don't know, but like that's gotta that 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 had to be a real moment, both in terms of the story and maybe also for Brett in real life. Oh, who, knows? who knows? With Stu Hart, I don't know, man. 
Because maybe it was Stu Hart sitting there being like, I can't believe how wrestling's changed. But yeah, just to interject a little philosophy in here. That is um, the, re- <laughs> the whole reason you're here. Um, uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, described uh, culture and society and perhaps the universe as a whole as a kind of contest of competing values, of competing wills and valuations. And I think professional wrestling is just a really great representation of that universal contest. Kind of like where each individual wrestler sort of represents a particular strain of thought or belief system or ideology or something like that. And they're, and they are fighting each other. Cause I would imagine it is something akin to, they say like in musical theater, you know, you, you, you talk. And then when you can no longer express yourself with words, that's when you start to sing and then you sing. And once you can no longer express yourself through singing, then that's when you start to dance. And I would imagine that in wrestling it is something like the storylines are two people have issues with each other and they attempt to, there is perhaps some attempt to express that verbally, but really what it comes down to is once they, once their beef can no longer be contained by words or by what is normally accepted by society, they must take it to the ring. Yeah. And if you think about, you know, the, the sort of classic face heel dichotomy, the, the way it was, um, expressed in Roland Barthes' uh, seminal essay, The World of Wrestling. Um, former NWA champion. Yeah, Roland, Roland, Barthes, the yeah. semiologist and former NWA. Yeah. Um, Bet- somewhere between Harley Race reigns. It's like the one classic academic treatment of wrestling was done by Roland Barthes in the, in the 30s. Um, and it really maps on actually very well to this thing that Nietzsche describes in his essay, Homer's Contest, his his very early essay, where in ancient Greece, there were two different kinds of jealousy or eris, E-R-I-S. The good eris, the healthy eris, the baby face of the contest is the person who is jealous of their opponent being better than, than them because they want to be that good or even better. Right. So they compete in order to they want their opponent to be as good as possible so that they can rise to be even greater in defeating them. The bad heiress, the bad jealousy is when you just want your opponent to be injured or disqualified or something so that you win by default. And I think that maps on pretty well to sort of the classic babyface heel dichotomy, Uh, though, of course, that changes over time. And as Nietzsche talked about the contest itself changes as the elements of the contest change, particularly the one that's on top. So is it sort of like if you're looking at the basic dichotomy of wrestling where it is, you know, an athletic competition on one extreme and a piece of theater on another extreme, you could also vaguely classify heel uh, faces and heels into those who ostensibly care about this being an athletic competition those who ostensibly care about fighting each other according to the rules or at least according to some sort of a moral code and that's what's important versus those who are interested in self-gratification those who are interested in winning at all costs and are uninterested in even the appearance of a contest that's one way in which, and I think, I guess, those maybe being classically... Too, yeah, those being two extremes. Those those can be the extremes, but th- this can all change. Eddie Guerrero was famous for 
lying, cheating, and stealing to the delight of the crowd. Sure. That's the main thing, I think, for me in defining faces and heels. Faces do things because the crowd likes it. Heels do things because the crowd hates it. Most generally. Even that, though, I think might be overly reductive. It's it's a spectrum, you know, and it, it depends on the story that's being told and the audience that's there. A really good promoter will educate their audience first and then exploit what they've taught the audience is good and bad. One story that I, I like to repeat that I heard that I heard Jim Cornette say uh, was that when uh, when they were doing tar and feather matches in Tennessee, it was comedy. They had uh, heels would lose or the faces would lose or whatever, and they'd cover them in like honey or something and feathers and it would be a big humiliating thing. And then. When they went down to Louisiana Territory and tried it, the crowds took it very, very seriously because they actually had tarring and feathering, which is actually a way to slowly and very painfully kill somebody the, with and the, boiling tar. And, and that had yes. happened like in recent memory. In recent memory. It was not, yeah. So it was the difference between a Three Stooges routine and the way we have seen people die. And and the fact that if the Three Stooges were yeah. real, like that's, that's some really dark stuff to do to each other <laughs> well you know the three stooges would would do awful things physically to each other and they'd be fine because that's slapstick that's, or because you know. of uh stockholm syndrome what the three stooges yeah they just you know mo was their abuser and mo they... was their abuser well they'd all abuse each other you know but it was really there was a power dynamic that yeah, in retrospect was. is deeply uncomfortable in speaking of power dynamics that are incredibly uncomfortable we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and discuss this week's bad match. Can, can, can I say something before we do this? Yes. Uh, this, is the, this is the initial episode. We decided we wanted to show Evan the classics. We also, you know, I've been reading about wrestling on the internet for a very long time since I was very young. And one of the things about wrestling fandom, and it's not unlike other fandom, we also like to talk a lot about the stuff that wasn't so good. And so uh, we decided to show Evan... The WrestleCrap website is oh, very yes. popular. The influence of WrestleCrap cannot be understated. Uh, if you don't know what they are, look them up. Um, they've been around since the 90s. Um, but the match that we uh, we brought up was from Survivor Series 1994. There should not have been Survivors. No, no. But there was there were a few. Uh, and the match itself was Doink the Clown and Dink the Clown and Wink the Clown and Pink the Clown, the three of them being little <sighs> people in clown outfits, versus Jerry the King Lawler. Google Jerry the King Lawler I, allegations well, one of these days. Oh God. Hold on. So it's Jerry the that, King that, Lawler. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, I know him. I know him from <laughs> documentaries about Andy Kaufman. That's that's my familiarity. He's a with him. brilliant performer, despite what you have seen. Jerry the <laughs> King Lawler and his three little person kings: Cheesy, Sleazy, and Queasy. So, Evan, what were your impressions of this Survivor Series elimination style tag team contest? Um, I would say my two big takeaways. I w- was shocked at the fan reaction, specifically in that there wasn't much of one. I- I'm surprised they did not rise up and slay everybody involved. I'm surprised that they did not storm out of the ring or not the ring. I'm surprised they did not storm out of the arena and demand their money back. I am amazed that the McMahon family has been able to continue their lives unharassed after putting such shit into the world. I firmly think that America really needs to pay reparations to little people and that we need to seize the McMahon fortune to serve as the basis for that. I'm also sure that wrestling has wronged a lot of other groups of people, but I just 
Yes. This is this so far. This is so focused on. And in the case of uh, these little people, or as it was and continues to be called, midget wrestling. I've, um, I've still, never, they still call it that. I've, I've never met a, a little person who wrestles that doesn't like the term midget wrestling. The line in the business is nobody's ever bought a ticket to see little people wrestling, but I I've know. made a lot of money off I of know. midget and, wrestling. And, 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 and that's little, the, and the is, term "little yeah. people" does feel. I I use it because that's what Peter Dinklage says. But yeah. it does. It feels weird it it's, every time I say it. It absolutely <laughs> does, but that's what people whatever. want. People like, can be called whatever they want. And there called, are few, it. there are few greater paydays, at least in the entertainment world, for little people oh, than yeah. professional Man, wrestling. That's a more that's searing true. indictment of our culture, but I do see what you, I do yes. see your point. Um, I mean, if you listen to Dinklage talk about the kind of acting roles, oh, yeah. that were available to him, um, or that he turned down. Oh in, my God, yeah. In, in order to forge the career that he, he has. could have been um, pink. Like what? Like right. seriously? Like what? What the fuck is this? Like why are people? Why did this get made? Why? Why did? Why did people take the time to to practice this? There was clearly a lot of uh, rehearsal and choreography yeah. for it because every time they did a bit, they did it five more times. The the structure of the match was uh, the Doink and his little clowns would do something to minorly injure or humiliate Jerry Lawler, and uh, it would involve all of them. And then Jerry Lawler would try the same thing uh, with his little kings and they would fail. And they did this sequence at least five times. The whole match, like, I thought the match would be bad, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And it is much worse than I thought it was. Like, I, my and, conception of, ba- of bad wrestling and what yeah. I didn't like and all of the things that I hated back in the 90s or whatever, all of that is so much better than this. Which is part of why it was so popular in the late 90s because it was just different from what a lot of what had come before which was so much worse the crazy thing about it is as if you're as you've already pointed out not only did the crowd not riot but the crowd seemed to actually enjoy the match yeah so what is that like it was the people they were drawn at the time which they were getting small crowds and they were getting crowds with like little kids and it was okay. you know I mean, they, they were trying to find the next thing, and they hadn't found it yet. Like, I can imagine a child really enjoying this. Uh, I can imagine if it was five minutes long, I could see an adult being like, oh, this is sort of enjoyable. I mean, it just felt like it went on. I know it didn't actually go on for an hour, it but it felt like went it went on. on for a really long time. Like It was 15 or 16 minutes. You're right. The biggest actual flaw in this is that it was way too long. They could have done the one gag and moved on. There was a point where we, ch- where we checked the time yeah. while we were watching it, and I was just like, I was so mortified at how much time was left. Making it even worse was the fact that the whole structure of the match was completely misconceived because they had it. It was a mixed tag match as they call it so that the larger wrestlers could only wrestle the larger wrestlers and the smaller wrestlers could only wrestle each other so and yet it was an elimination match so once doink the larger wrestler on his team was eliminated there was actually literally no way that the other clowns could win the match because none of them were legally allowed to be in the ring with jerry lawler in order to eliminate him and yet that happened doink was eliminated very early in the match so the vast majority of it just literally made no sense whatsoever you said something there that we actually had not said yet um for anybody who has not watched the match for anybody listening to this who's kind of more on my side of the equation doink is the clown wrestler so just stop and take that in for a moment he's a clown wrestler i can only presume his moves are clown themed 
Yeah, and, and it wasn't even the original Doink, actually. Who The original Doink was a very oh, was, accomplished Was his family like professional put, wrestler. put under a curse by, by a witch, and then his son had to also be a clown wrestler, and then that's going to go on for another five generations? No, he had drug problems, and they fired him. But l- let me tell you the, the, the real difference, is that Doink, as you saw him, was a clown. The original Doink was an evil clown which is so much more interesting from a storytelling perspective really look nobody has come (laughs) here today to disparage evil clowns what was the difference in their behavior well doink the the regular clown would come out and smile and squirt his flower with the water onto the bad guys and shake the kids hands and run around the ring and climb to the top rope and sit on his opponent that was the whoopee cushion. The whoopee. They would pipe in a fart noise on television. Um, Doink the evil clown would come out with his arm in a sling, um, antagonize the baby faces a bit, give one of them some flowers. The baby face would begrudgingly take it, go and give it to a child. And then Doink would take his arm out of the sling, which was really a pipe, and beat the crap out of the baby face when his back was turned, and then laugh at him. Okay, I mean, that's more... That, that's so that's, much better. Yeah, yeah, it was, I, it was yeah, only I would take about that. a year. It was the most entertaining thing on the first year of Monday Night Raw. I'll say that. And the crowd at the Manhattan Center where they taped almost every episode that year loved it. Because <laughs> I would say if the best part of your character is the fart noise that they have to add in post-production. Like, that's not... Yeah. Gra- I'm not anti a fart noise oh, no, of uh, course not. being part of a character, but... Let me just say, though, that the uh, best wrestler in that match, the best performer, besides Jerry Lawler, perhaps, if, you know... Jerry Lawler at least sold things as well as you possibly could with his facial expressions and that sort of thing. But the guy who played Dink was actually really excellent. And the the few actually athletic, impressive, somewhat impressive spots in the match come from him. Yeah, he was, he was a veteran of the, of the little person scene. And uh, he was the guy that they called when they needed one guy on the roster like that. Mm-hmm. If you watch closely, you can see him kind of calling the shots and getting everybody to follow him because yeah. nobody else in the match seems to know what the hell is going on, despite the overly simple format. This was a real roller coaster between the two matches. Hard Austin... I had problems with it, but like I also, there were moments where I was like, all right, uh, you know, I definitely can see the things that these guys do that are cool, but what little goodwill was built up there, I have to say, was uh, was erased along with part of my frontal lobe uh, by watching this Doink Lawler match. Another, another point of contrast between the two matches, and there are seemingly infinite ones, is the fact that... Hart Austin was one of the feature matches on WrestleMania 13. It wasn't actually the official main event, but was way more um, highly anticipated than the main event was. There were some big problems with the main event, last minute substitutions and so on. But Hart Austin was a match that I'd been building and building and building for months. Whereas um, Doink and the Clowns versus uh, Lawler and the Kings was the undercard kind of a throwaway thing for the really little kids in between some of the more important matches. Time, time for you to go take a piss 
if you're some people, if you're there yeah, seeing actually. it. Yeah. If you're putting on a three hour event at an arena, you know, oh, you, yeah. you gotta put something like that in sometimes. There wasn't an intermission or anything on the pay per view broadcast. I was I was very upset that there was no intermission uh during Avengers Endgame. I'm just like, how yeah. how have we not learned this lesson? This is a lesson that Bollywood's known for decades. Oh, like you could fit another showing into the theater. Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess that's it. Yeah. You just think this year's WrestleMania was seven and a half hours Jesus. with no intermission. Jesus like so you you the go the show was slow. <laughs> I mean like I guess I've seen like I don't know. I guess I've gone to like music festivals of some kind where you're sort of in one Ugh. spot for a while, but like that's a that's a long time, man. Like I went to Ozfest once and got there at nine in the morning because I wanted to see Lacuna Coil and they were playing at nine thirty, and then I was there until eleven. You know, it was too much. It was too much. <laughs> but I must say, like this wasn't my favorite WrestleMania of all time. But they did do a miraculous job at not completely burning out the crowd. Yeah. early in the show and that's you know a lot of and and i think as we go on with this podcast we'll probably start watching larger chunks of wrestling mm. like full shows and not just individual matches and the the thought that has to go behind the pacing of the entire show not just the ebb and flow of a particular match talking about you know the slower and more boring parts as opposed to the uh, more exciting climactic parts think about that not just within a individual match but now across a three four plus hour I, show i honestly feel like i'm back in school taking an opera class again because that is that's my frame of reference for like a something that's seven hours long and made up <laughs> with a but and as much Wait, as i love classical music i've never been a big opera guy we're not gonna make you watch this most recent wrestlemania well, and and then you're putting on a show and you want people to come back the next week or the next month or whatever it is so you also can't burn them out completely in that one night now wrestlemania is what the whole year has been building to so there's sort of an expectation that they're gonna you know throw it all out there and then the next night we're starting again slowly and raw and smackdown don't stop for the summer right like there's never never repeats there's never like 50 to 51 original episodes a year they sometimes during christmas they'll have a week where it's like the best of smackdown that year but sometimes they don't they haven't done that in a long time they haven't done that so we're talking like 104 episodes of tv and like 20 odd pay-per-views or 10 yeah, 10 to 20 uh, pay-per-views about 15 16 pay-per-views now plus the nxt show plus the 205 live show plus yeah the they have UK a bunch of minor show. they have some the minor wwe shows. has a full roster of over 200 people and they uh, they have many brands they have a, at I least would five add, full-time brands i would no. add up all those hours to think about how much it is per year but it would make me way too sad oh, about yeah. how i've spent <laughs> yeah. my life oh don't do that's like that's like doing the math on how much you've spent on we in your life like just uh, it's just gonna be sad it's just gonna give your enemies ammo all right well on that note um did we talk about all the things i think we talked about all of the things excellent remember kids professional wrestling is like opera professional wrestling is like opera and if you are somebody who was personally responsible for the doink lawler match i am going to need you to email us an apology and Venmo me $5. Looking at you, Bruce Pritchard. Yeah, yeah. Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> it's great that Evan doesn't know who Bruce Pritchard is. Bury Bruce Pritchard for us, Evan. I, w- I will. I'm coming for him. I'm going to do some Googling, and then I'm going to fucking bury this guy in episode two. <laughs> if we can start a Twitter war with Bruce Pritchard, we will get so many listeners. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Nah. So we're going to plan that. for. Uh, we have we have our planning session once we're done recording. So Excellent. we're going to talk about that. Russo, um, you're next. 
I don't want to be involved with Russo. Yeah, that's probably um, all righty. So this has been first episode of Contesting Wrestling. We are going to get all of our social media stuff together very soon. So next episode, we will tell you where to follow all of us as a collective. If you would like to follow us individually, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Evan Burke, etc. That's Evan Burke, E-T-C. Uh, you can also check out my writing at evanburke.biz. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Diamond Fire. That's at Dr. Diamond Fire. Um, you can find me on Facebook under Doc Rod Diamond Fire, uh, but I don't really use it. So find me on Twitter. Um, I'm available for bookings, both wrestling, commentating, ring announcing. Um, you can find me at Scribe Ben. That's S C R I B E B E N on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, if you have academia.edu, uh, you can find some of my scholarly articles on my academia.edu page. Um, stay away from my Facebook. I mean it. Stay away. Stay away from me personally. Uh, just in your, if you see me on the street, don't just keep walking. Um, if you see me on the street, come up to me, give me a dollar. I'll talk to you for yeah. a while about wrestling. You know and what? And then give me another dollar. Your thing is better. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I rescind my thing and go with your thing. Um, and the- I have been trained by a few carnies in my day. You, you're not, you know, I'm not a little kid anymore. Please give me money. <laughs> and on on that note, yes. please make sure you go to Patreon.com/slash/ContestingWrestling. Uh, you can subscribe to us. We have a $1 tier if you want to just be cool. I don't know who's going to go with that, but it's there. And then we have a $5 tier that will grant you access to all of our bonus content, which includes watch-alongs, uh, occasional bonus episodes. And uh, the more money we have, the more you utterly smash that like and subscribe button, the more chances we will have to produce more bonus content for you, leading to a vicious cycle. Uh, but like a, the good kind of a vicious cycle. You know, some people don't want to be cool. Don't be true. one of them they people. Don't. They don't. I mean, if you do, if you are one of those people, you can still just give us a dollar a month and then not have access to premium content. It, you'd still be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be better than everyone else. Better than everyone else. And that's what's important. Thank you. This has been Contesting Wrestling. <laughs>